Okay, so we're gonna get started without further ado. Uh, a lot to do tonight. Paragimmel is action packed. So I'm gonna talk fast. So hold on to your hats. A lot going on here. Um, okay. What's this? What's that? Okay. So we, okay. So I like to start with the, this particular view because it shows you what I call the sort of paragraphing of the Tanakh. If you notice here, if I haven't mentioned before, the pay, there's pays and samachs. Those are actually paragraphing. Pay is patua, which means the line in a, uh, in a text would be open. And samach is sagur. So the line would continue after a pause, just that's by the by. Now, if you can take a look at this, this right away tells you the divisions, this particular edition, because the, the divisions of the Perik are fourth. The 31 Sukkim in chapter three. The first part um, from Sukkim Aleph to Vav um, is sort of the summation and the ending of chapter two. Uh, I'll show you the outline in a second. I don't know if I prepared that, but I'll. Uh, okay, in a second. And the second part is from Zion to Yud Aleph, which is the story of Adniel. And then from Yud Bet to Lam is the story of Ehud. And Lam and Aleph, the story of Shamgar. So we have three judges coming up, three separate stories, plus a sort of uh, Sikum. Uh, dear, I am afraid that I did not open that particular thing. I had the cycle last time, and I don't think I can open it now. Maybe I can. Um, yay. Okay. So here we go. So you see the Shuftim outline. Introduction chapters one and two. The beginning of chapter three is also part of the introduction. Chapters three to 16 is the chronological history of the judges. And, and part three of the two stories show, really three stories, showing the spiritual decline at this time. Now, it's important to understand the outline of Shoftim. It's like an English composition. It's very structured. And chapters three to 16 generally follow this cycle. The chapter two that we did last time explains the cycle. Right, and, and we'll just go through it for one minute. The cycle is like this. There's a time of peace. The children of Israel sin. Hashem punishes them through their enemies. And they're, after the, they are sufficiently, um, what shall we call it? They've suffered enough, then they cry out to God. At that point, Hashem sends a judge to save them and he saves them and there is peace. So, I wanted uh, to go over that because when you see chapter three, you see uh, how this plays out. But let's take a look now at the Mishulav. This particular edition, it's like color coded, so it's 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 easier on the eyes. Now, the first six verses, like I said, are part of the past uh, chapter and ending. If you remember, at the end of chapter two. We said that Hashem has decided that the punishment, so to speak, is going to fit the crime. 
we're going to have what we call midah kenege midah. And because the Jewish people did not remove the pagans and idolaters from the land, the punishment will be actually very fitting. They will no longer be able to remove them from the land. And now that they are stuck, so to speak, with these nations, Hashem says, I'm going to use those nations as a test to see, right? This is Chafet in the last chapter. Okay, God is now leaving those nations and those nations we're going to see through those nations that are, we're stuck with how much we cling to a Kaddish Baruch Hu and the Derek Hashem. And the last Pasuk in Perek Bet is Hashem Hashem left these nations and did not give them over to Yoshua. And now Shoft in Perek Gimel begins And these are the nations that God left. So now Shoftim Paragimel is continuing that sort of introductory mark, but it's being more specific and telling you these are the nations that we're going to have to contend with going forward. They're, we're stuck with them, so to speak. And we are now seeing in Pasuk Aleph, Linasot Bamit Yisrael, the nations are going to be a test. In life, sort of everything is a test, but these nations are going to show what the Jewish people. Um, can accomplish, or unfortunately not. All those who didn't know the wars of Canaan. Okay, I'm going to go through the next couple of sukkim in order and try to make sense of this together with you. Pasuk bet is a parenthesis, right? In order, only this is only so that coming generations will have to learn war. Rock, but you know, I'm, before the previous generation didn't have to learn war. This is a strange sort of parenthesis. And Pasuk Gimel continues where Pasuk Aleph had introduced, these are the nations, and Pasuk Gimel actually tells us the nations and who they are. Um, before we go into the nations and who they are, I think we have to talk about Pasuk Bet for a minute. The parenthesis is teaching us that different generations had a different um, take on war, right? And this is going to be, they have to learn war. What, is, what does this mean? What is going on here? What are we supposed to understand from this? So there's a, a number of approaches. If we look at Rashi, Rashi says, Hashem only left them for this thing, that they should look and look uh, carefully, let's go name, look carefully into it, right? The future generations, what sin causes. Now they have to learn war. Now, if you look at the Ralbag, the Ralbag has a slightly different take. The Ralbag says the future generations have to know what war is because they didn't know what war was, because Hashem fought all their wars. Okay, so what's the difference in the take? In other words, how do we understand this? According to the Ralbag, what the Jews don't know is how much God saved them. You know, what they're, 
what the Israelis call alamuchad. They they're born in the land. They they live there. Yeah, there were wars and stuff. And it's interesting because so much of Shefer Shoftim is is so contemporary. I mean, we we live this. Like we came into Israel. Those of us who live here, yeah, right. So we don't know. We weren't here. I mean, some of us were here for some of the wars, unfortunately. But the the original, how many of us were here in the War of Independence? We don't know. So that the Ralbag is saying they don't know those wars, and now they're going to be challenged and have to fight other wars. But Rashi is taking a different direction. Rashi is saying that they don't know that their sins are causing this. That if they wouldn't sin, God would help them. They don't know that. And this is a bit of an issue. The actually um, in Orot, Rav Cook talks about learning war, which is a very interesting but discussion, but not for now. And, and he says that one has to know war because there's evil in the world. And one has to know how to combat evil. It's very interesting. And that's a very uh, a general statement, not, not specific only to the time of the judges. But in any event, the generations that are going to follow, and we talked about this last week, the generations going to follow, they don't have the same um, connection. They didn't go through the same things. They didn't see the, the Jordan split. They didn't see the sun stand still. They didn't see the walls of Yericho come down. So for them, this is all, you know, it's ancient history. It doesn't mean much. And they, they move along. Now, if we take a look at how this develops, okay, Let's go on to Pasagim. There are five Plishti governors. Now, let's look at our map for a second. Along the coast here, the Plishtim, the Philistines, come in. It's from the same route as Polish, invaders. They came across the Mediterranean from the Aegean Sea, from the Greek islands, and they entered the land of Israel. I think that in the if I'm not mistaken, the, the, one of the Egyptian um, pharaohs describes how he, he repulsed their attempt to take over Egypt as well. They come to the coast here and they have five principal cities, okay? Gaza, Aza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gat, and Ekron. Those five cities are Plishti cities starting right now, we're hearing about it. And they're going to be a problem for the Jewish people clear through to the end of David and Melech's reign. David and Melech finally puts a, a, a stop to them, but they are trying very hard to encroach into Israel proper. And what we know about the Plishtim from things that you know we've uh, discovered, Das Mikra has very interesting stuff about it, is that they were they were um, very belligerent. They were warlike, they were the ones who came in with weapons and chariots, and it was, uh, the Jews were always farmers, shepherds, you know, they didn't have these, these weapons, so they were up against a whole different type of warfare with the Philistines. The Philistines are not from the Seven Nations. The Seven Nations are still there, but if you look back at our Pasuk, right, Bechol HaKnani, all the Canaanim, which were uh, concentrated, I think, in the Galil, it's safe to say. Hatzidoni, this is already Lebanon. The Chivi, Yosheb Har Lebanon, all it's in the north. Mehar, Baal, Hermon, Adlebo, Haman. 
This is a lot of northern stuff, but the Canaan were all over the place. And if we look at the map, when we, we looked in chapter one, we saw that there were pockets of these six nations because the Girgashim left, we spoke about that. The Girgashim you know, left Israel, moved to Africa, lived happily ever after. The Medrash talks about it. And the six nations are all over the place. In a certain sense, we have the Eastern enemies, which we could talk about today, Moab, Amon. In the South, we have, well, it's not on this map, we have Amalek, we have Edom. We, we are surrounded by enemies. And that is a very important uh, piece of information. And this Pasuk Gimel is telling us that all around us. So number one thing that we have to understand is that we're dealing with a reality that's extremely challenging because the Jewish people are stuck with these nations everywhere and they're, they're warlock, they're hostile. It's very problematic. Now, and they were left to test the Jewish people to know, will they listen to the mitzvot of God that he commanded their forefathers in the hands of Moshe? <clears throat> Reiterating the test. These nations are going to be a test. And how is this going to play out? We'll talk about it in a minute. Let's just finish this section. <clears throat> And the children of Israel dwelt amongst Canaani, Hiti, the Amori, the Prizi, the Chibi, and the Yusi, the six nations to the left. And notice the, the language is, advised, is, is used advisedly. The children of Israel dwelt amidst, in the midst of these six nations. So who is the dominant? Uh, culture that's that have a Omer. This is not the Jews. And of course, what happens after that? And they took the daughters of these people for wives. And they gave their daughters to the sons of these people. And they worshiped their gods. So this is the end of the introductory section. And we've set up here the dynamic that's going to plague the Jewish people throughout Sefer Shoftim. They are in the midst of these uh, uh, nations and their culture is the culture that's all around them. This is a very hard thing to deal with. So first of all, geographically, we have a problem because you know, on all sides, we have these you have to remember, and I think it's important to reiterate, because we're, <clears throat> one second, excuse me. Today, everyone is very nefesh. Everybody is very uh, liberal, and what do you mean, and this and that. You have to understand, when Akash Barfu told the Jews to get rid of these people, it's not because they were nice people. They are pagans in every sense of the word. They their worship is depraved. They do child sacrifice. Their rights involve all kinds of promiscuity and immorality. They were really problematic people. And what happens when you're surrounded by these other types, it's kind of, there's, there's commerce. You know, we're, we're Jews. We like do business with them. We get friendly with them. 
you know, you're nice, they're nice, everybody's nice, you know, and then, uh, oh, she's pretty, and then he falls in love with her, and with that boy, before you know it, intermarriage is going on, and then when you have intermarriage, right, so a very interesting discussion of this by Rabbi Michael Hatton, this is what happens, in intermarriage, okay, which is described here in Pasuk Vav, we, we, we're like, you know, we live in contemporary times, not only in Israel, in America also, the culture that's around us, like if there's a conflict between two cultures, who's going to win, okay? Generally speaking, the most established, the most dominant, the most popular, and also the easiest, right? When you come into a religion like Judaism that demands morality, integrity, strict, you know, spirituality, um, and, and there are laws for everything, you know, it's just easier to like, you know, well, let's just do whatever the non-Jews do, and so much easier. And then let's say we're attracted by those cultures, and we are. If we look around us, you know, it's it's no secret that we're, we live not only in Israel. In Israel, we, we have... Um, Sometimes because the the uh, the Arabs are 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 often hostile, we perhaps don't have as much intermarriage here. But it's here in Chutzlar. There's plenty of intermarriage. Everybody's nice. We all get along, and the dominant culture takes over. And if you think about it, when you're not connected to your authentic Jewish values, so it's very easy to be swept along in. You know, everybody's good, you know, we're all good, you know, let's let's be liberal, let's live and let live, let's do it, you know, let's just go along with the, you know, materialism and the 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 general social decline that we see all around us. And when you have a, a couple that marries, right, and everybody, you know, love conquers all and all this, but then what happens? The dominant culture prevails. So you have these families where they have a Hanukkah menorah and they have a Christmas tree. Like, who's winning here? Christmas trees, by the way, are pagan. I'll just take a digression because I'm going to talk about it passing science, so I'm going to go ahead of myself and just show you a little bit. I mentioned, I showed you last time. This is the Baal. This is the kind of uh, the male gods that they worship, the ba they were called Baal. Baal means master. So the Baalim, you know, I have different images here. You could just Google it. The Baalim were the gods of rain, the ones of power, of war. And then you had the Ashtoret. And the Ashtoret were these like fat, you know, fertile females, you know, and Madak says they were like animals. And they, they were the goddesses of fertility and all this sort of stuff. And then you had Asherah worship, which was worship of trees. Now, there's actually different opinions of how the Asherah worked. Was it a tree that they worshiped? Was it a shrine under a tree? The Asherah shouldn't be confused with the Ashtoret. But, you know, I found some like fun pictures for you of what this looked like. So what, what basically the way this sort of thing happens is that we, you know, you know, you sort of hedge your bets first, like, you know, there's God. And then there's also this little you know, good luck charm, and like, well, why don't you just put an offering for our, our rain god, and then we'll have rain, and we're not discounting god, and then it's sort of, you know, it takes over, and this sort of thing is a very great trap, and unfortunately, 
Jews fell into this trap very, very often. And Shoftim <clears throat> teaches us, number one, <clears throat> this is one of our lessons, <clears throat> the prevailing cultures are easy. They're comfortable. They have fun stuff to offer. We have to be very, very careful what we take in of outside culture. We could take in the things that are beautiful and that are worthwhile, but we have to be on, on guard all the time against immorality and um, uh, values that are antithetical to our values. That's definitely a takeaway. And the other takeaway is that one thing leads to another. If you start off with having you know, your little good luck charm, your little Baal, and then you have the next thing you know is like you're, you're worshiping it and like God is not so important. And the next thing you know, there's like, you know, uh, intermarriage. The next thing you know, there's full-blown idolatry and you throw God away. And um, this is the cycle that happened. So starting Pusik Zion, we're gonna move along. Starting Pesach Zayat is our first example of that cycle that I showed you. Pesach Zayat. Vayasubnei Yisrael et hara b'nei Hashem vayishkechu et Hashem Eloheim vayabdu et ha'balim et ha'asherot. And the children of Israel did evil in the eyes of God and they forgot Hashem, their God, and they served the Baalim and the Asherot. Okay, so this is the response to that test. They're they're overcome with the temptations of these idol worshipers around them. And what happens is they do evil. Now, that's not defined. What does that mean? What mitzvot are they ignoring? What's happening there? And then, you know, you have a Baal. By the way, just for a, a fun fact, one of the, the, all the Baalim had different names. There was a Baal this and Baal that. So one of the interesting ones that, uh, if you think about it, is Baal Zavuv. And this comes up in Malach um, Bed, if I'm not mistaken, Baal If you take that in English and put it in one word, you get Beelzebub, which is one of the uh, expressions for the devil in English. In any case, the Baalim were very problematic. The Ashe wrote a lot of very, very immoral things going on, the you know, child worship, uh, child sacrifice and all this stuff. They forget God. Now, if you're going to be a villain, Rishatayim is definitely the right name. <laughs> Anything with an ayim at the end is twice, right? So this is Russia twice, bad. Kushan was an evil person. He was the king of Aram Narayim. Now I'm going to like go out a little bit on a limb because I'm not so good at this stuff, but I tried very hard to get this for you. So I, if I can, no, I can't. Oh, well, I thought I'd be able to turn it around in the Zoom because I couldn't turn around before. So I'm going to need... Okay. Sorry, ladies. If you look sideways, you can check it out. This is all the way up northeast around Narayan. This is Israel down here. If you turn your head, you could see it. I couldn't straighten it out. Around Narayim is Mesopotamia. Naharayim also is two rivers. That is where Abram came from. So in a sort of sense, Kushan and Aram Narayim is 
if Amraham hadn't left and left Lecha, right, that's who we would be. These evil people, something to think about. In any event, who is Kushan, right? And they serve him for eight years. Um, oh, don't bring the, I need the Radak here. Okay. So. Yeah, Kachayashmo, Radak brings you, maybe that was his name. And it's possible that Rishatayim is a place, but the Drash says, so there were two evil things he did. One was Bilam. Bilam was also from Aram Narayim and also Kushat. But there's other Midrashim, which I don't have for you, but trust me, that, um, that this is all because of Laban. The Gemara says that Kushan was Laban, which really the Dasovam says that means he was a descendant of Laban. We like to sort of you know, um, put all of our evil people in one basket. Laban was evil because look what he did to Yaakov. And the Alban chased after Yaakov and they made a pact that they would not be hostile to each other. And Kushan breaks that pact. Bilam is also a descendant of the same Laban. He also was very hostile. And um, so we're, we're not dealing with a, a, a friend, okay? Now, what happens? How do they serve him? Probably with taxes, with um, money and produce, livestock, whatever he wants to give them, and they're serving him. And this is our cycle. Open this up. Open it up here. Right? They sin. Hashem punishes them through their enemies. Eight years of this, and they cry out to Hashem, and Hashem sends a judge. So this is our first example of how the cycle actually plays out. Pasuk Tet. And the children of Israel cried out to God. Okay, I just want to point out that very, very often the section where God listens to them and gives them a uh, a judge is after Tefillah. It would really be nice if there was also tshuva, but that's rare. But Hashem is merciful, and even when the Jews don't do tshuva, Hashem has mercy on them, and He brings for them a savior, Moshiel of Israel, a savior by Yoshie, and He saves them. Now, the two languages, the Malbin points out. That's the question, Rebbetzin. Sure. Um, when they, when Bnei Yisrael engage in tefillah, can we assume tshuva, even though it's not explicitly written in the text, or not? Or no. Sorry. <laughs> you know what? You could sit, you could tell this in Parakdali when they actually do chuba with Devora. But you could see that there's a qualitative difference because after the story of Devora, at the beginning of Parak Bav, right, we see the children of Israel did evil in the eyes of God. Here, as you'll see after, uh, I'll show you right now, after Atniel dies, you have by Yosifu, they continue to do evil, which means they never stopped. Which shows you how Hashem is merciful even when we don't deserve it. And there's more about that in this story. But when you compare it to what happens after Devorah, there's Tshuva. And then there's peace. And it starts off over again, but it's Vayasu. So the Mephor should make a point of that.
good question. Okay. Now the children's cries cried out to God. He sends them a Moshiach, Moshiach twice. Moshiach Israel by Yoshiach. The Malbin points out that he had a military victory as well as a spiritual victory. And how did that work? Now it's Othniel ben Kenaz, who was the Kalev's younger brother. And let's just remind ourselves what we know about uh, Othniel. Othniel was a younger brother of Kalev by a different father, apparently, because Kalev was ben Yefuna and Othniel was son of Kenaz. They are from the tribe of Yehuda. Kalev was that great leader uh, that also, like Yehoshua, did not um, sin with the spies. And Othniel, we heard about in back in Yehoshua, in chapter 15, and in the beginning of Shoftim in chapter 1, the exact same story with very, very small alterations. The story of how he conquers Kiryat Sefer, he captures the town of the book, and he wins the hand in marriage of Kalev's daughter, Aksa, who was reported to have been very, very beautiful. And the, the story is told over twice, and the symbolism of the, of the book leads the Chazal to understand that Atniel was a very great Tamachacham. And when it says he conquered Kiryat Sefer, not necessarily a town physically, but he conquered um, the book, and he was able to bring back halachas that had been lost at the time of Yeshua. So we remember him, and he's a very, very great person. And on Pasuk Yud, we see now the Spirit of God comes upon Othniel. This is amazing, right? What does that mean? Variously translated as a spirit of bravery or a spirit of wisdom or a spirit of prophecy. But we don't see this with every Shofei. He is a great person. The Spirit of God comes upon him. Now, um, <clears throat> we have an interesting build uh, construction of this Pasuk. By Israel, the spirit of God came upon him, and he judged Israel by and then he went out to war. So why is that? Now, Rabbi Tanhuma has a measure; it's right here in the Rashi. Uh, a very, very beautiful drash. Adniel, because he was a Tamachacha, what does he do? He looks at, he looks at the, um, the Torah, and he sees this Pasuk, this is Shmot, I have surely seen the, the misery of my nation. I actually had that for you, but it's sideways, so let's just forget it. <laughs> I'll have to get better at this text. Huh? Anyway, the Pasuk says, seeing I have seen, which the English will translate as I, I have surely seen, and the Medrash asks, why does it say twice? And the Medrash explained that God saw the suffering of the Jewish people, and he also saw how much trouble they're going to give him in the desert with the Cheda Egel and all these things. And God said, even though I see all these sins that they will commit, I see their oppression and affliction, and I will redeem them. 
So Othniel comes along and says, you know what, Hashem? If you redeem the Jewish people then, whether they were worthy or not, then you should redeem them now as well, whether they deserve it or not. And that was the judgment that he judged. It says, the spirit of God came upon him. He communicated with Hashem. He judged Israel. He said, Kaddish Baruch Hu, you saved them in Egypt. You saw their sins and you saved them anyway. Here too, see their sins and save them anyway. And then he goes out to war. There are two languages here. One is that God gives in his hand Kushan, and the other is his hand is strong against Kushan. Mepharshim asked why twice, and it seems that they, um, uh, he was able to win against Kushan many times and chase him back up to Aram Narayim. Now, a very, very interesting thought here, and I want you to understand this, that what's going on here? What are being told in this very, very beautiful medrash? The Medrash is telling us that you always need a good Jewish lawyer. <laughs> or, put it another way, speak positively about the Jewish people. We, we tend to look at the negative, Abayn Usher says. People always look at the negative, but it's very important to look at the positive. And you have someone who comes along like us, Neil, and defends the Jewish people, and a Kaddish who says, good, good gazak, I like it. Nitzchuni banai, my children won. They've convinced me. And we see this with Moshe Rabbeinu. He talks God into forgiving us. We see this with David, Elat Tzolmeasu. We see this with Adniel. We see this as a great Jewish leader defends the Jewish people. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu gets upset with Hosea. He says to Hosea, they're sinning. And Hosea says, get a new nation. Hashem is unhappy with Hosea, right? Hashem gets, you know, when Eliyahu keeps saying, I know these people are sinners, Hashem says, you know what? I think, you're, I think it's time for you to retire, Eliyahu. Let's bring in Elisha, right? We have to learn from this always to speak good about individual Jews and about the nation of Jews. This is a tremendous lesson and a very important thing. Okay, then we see, right? And the land was quiet for 40 years and then Atniel dies. So this is again the end of that cycle that I showed you, right? The judge saves them and you have peace. 40 years is the typical time of peace. Now, I just want to show you something here, which um, talking about Atniel, there's the Yalkut here on Atniel. The Yalkut Shimoni says, um, referring to where he captures Kiryat Sefer, Zeshamar Katsu Vizarah Hashemesh Bahashemesh. Amarab Abba Barkahana, ain't Anu Yodim Shazarah Hashemesh Bahashemesh? It says in Kohelet, the sun rises and the sun sets. Don't we know that the sun rises, sun sets? Like, what are you saying here, Kohelet? Ella, this is a very important principle in Judaism. Kodem she'eshkiyah kadosh baruch hu shimsho shel tzadik zeh hu mazriach shimsho shel tzadik zeh. Before kadosh baruch hu sets the sun of one tzadik, the sun of another tzadik is already rising. What does this mean? The example we're referring to right now, before Yehoshua 
left before the sun of Yeshua set and Yeshua leaves the scene, right? Zor Hashim Shmashal Akhmiyabunkaz. was already in place. His sun was already rising. And this is important principle, the, the beautiful Medrash, we don't have time to go through it. When Rabbi Akiva died, Rabbi was born, right? This goes through all of Jewish history, right? <clears throat> Before Eli died, Shmuel was in place, Nero Kim It's a very, very beautiful uh, Medrash and something to think about. Another one of our important lessons. HaKadosh Baruch Hu never abandons the Jewish people. If you, if you look into Jewish history, there's always someone coming up. Before the Holocaust, there were seeds of Torah scholarship planted in America and in Israel because the Torah centers of Europe were going to be decimated. They were in place and ready to start again. It's really quite astounding. Hashem always takes care of us. This should give us a lot of hope and comfort. We're never abandoned. Okay, which brings us to the next story. Now, Pasuk Yudbet, as I mentioned to, uh, to you before, it says here, by Yosifu B'nei Yisrael, which means that while Adiel was, um, was alive, they had 40 years of peace, but the children of Israel were sinning. They continued to evilize Hashem by Yechazek Hashem et Eglon Melech Moab Yisrael, Al Kiyosut HaRabbe Nei Hashem. And it's a very uh, um, action-packed story, so I think we're, we're going to go through it. I don't have a lot of time, but it's uh, actually very interesting. Now notice it says, God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, on Israel because they did evil in the eyes of Hashem. What does that mean, God strengthened Eglon? So the Malbim has a discussion here. Um, the Malbim says that, what is it? Right? In the normal course of events, Jews would have won over Eglon. And if you'll notice, there's a certain tone to this paragraph. It's actually satirical. Shmuel and Navi wrote Sefer Shoftim. And you see that there's Shmuel, in a certain sense, is making fun of the Moabites. They shouldn't have been strong enough. But because the children of Israel did evil, this is the Malbim, right? The Hashkach of Hashem made them stronger. Now, what happens with them, right? Prosecute Gimel. There becomes a coalition here. If you take a look at the map, Moab is here, okay? Southeast, across the, the um, Yamamela. And Amon and Moab are brother nations. Amon has been pushed up, right? The Jews took over this territory. This is the territory of Vube. This is the territory of God. Now, Moab, which is really a, a Nebi nation, right? They were never our friends. The children of Lot were problematic. They, they were hostile. They did not help the Jews. The Torah says they can never become part of the Jewish nation. And that's why um, Ruth becoming part of the Jewish nation was such a situation, right? But now, and also, they're the ones who hire Billa against Jewish people. So we don't really like Moab. Moab gets together with their brother Amon and with Amalek. Now, Amalek were, were nomads, but mostly I don't have, you know, I had that other map. But I, yeah. 
I'm not sure that I can. It's also sideways. <laughs> Amalek is really southeast, right? Where the um, where the um, the nation of Edom is, but they're also nomads. They're all over the place, and they are not our friends. Amalek, they're they attack the weak. They're they're just like bad guys. And they make a coalition. And what do they do? They strike Israel. And they inherit, they take over Eretz Marim. So what's Eretz Marim? Right? Rashi says right away, that's Yericho. The place where Yericho stood, Yericho no longer stands there. Right? So cities were built around it. And one of them is called the City of Dates. This is a very lush and fertile land. That's why Lot wants it to live there. It's beautiful. So the king of Moab says, oh, I like that. What does he do? Now, if you watch the geography here, if you see the map, okay, if you don't see it, Moab has to go north through Ubay, further north through God, cross the Jordan, go into the territory of Binyamin, and this is where Yericho is. And also they're encroaching on Ephraim. That means in addition to the tribes on the East Bank, they are enslaving and oppressing four different tribes, two on the East Bank, Ruben and God, and two on the West Bank, the Yemen and Ephraim. This is not a good situation. Notice the escalation. They were under Kushan eight years, and they're under Eglon 18 years. And, you know, it shows you how stubborn they are because they're not crying out to God. They're like, they're stuck with their bad ways and they don't want to move and they don't want to change. And, and even when they're suffering, and notice this is a sama, that would be um, a closed, there would be a space and then starting again. Here's the cycle again. God punishes them with an enemy after they sin. Okay, so now it's getting very interesting. They cry out to God and he raises up for them a Moshia, a savior. Now notice only one Moshia here. The Malvin points us out this really the military victory, but we don't see the same kind of uh, spiritual power that Utniel had. Ehud is a great warrior, but he's not Utniel. I did point out to you at the very beginning that every Shofar is a whole different situation. Now, Ehud ben Geira, ben Geira, Geira is a very Binyamin name because you see Shimi ben Geira, he, the son of Binyamin was Geira, right? And this Ehud ben Hayimini, ironically, Binyamin is the son of my right hand, the right hand expressing power. He was Ish Iter Yadimino, which is an expression for left-handedness. His left hand was the one that was powerful by him. His right hand, literally, Iter is closed. But this, this is, I think, very misunderstood, right? I know lefties, because like my husband's a lefty, and I know lots of lefties. It doesn't mean that there was any physical defect or deformity, they're just left-handed. And the Das Mikra says, it just means that while most people are right-handed and the left hand is weaker and not as um, uh, skilled, right? By then, the left hand is stronger, and the right hand is not as skilled. And this is a very important, well, everything here is very important. Now, if you look in Perak Chaf, Perak Chaf, Pasik Tetzayim, 
in Shelton, we see 700 B'nai Binyamin. Mikol Amazer Shavana Ot Ish Bachur Iter Yadimino. Seven, 700 choice Binyamin warriors, all left handed. Kolze, Kolea Ba'evin El Sa'ara, Loyati. All of them would take a slingshot, which is a hard thing to, you know, it's not like that thing that you think it is. It's like this, you know, piece of leather with it, put a rocket and you throw it. Like it's very hard. They could hit a hair and not miss. 700 left handed. So these guys are no slouches, left handed or not. Okay. So let's, let's understand that. It doesn't mean that he was a weakling, it just means he was a lefty. Smoli, what they say in Hebrew. Not Smolani, which means a, a leftist. Okay. And he's an important person. He's at the head of a delegation, which is sent with a gift to Eglon the King of Moab. What is this gift? Probably produce, livestock, stuff like this. Classic Tetzai. Now we're going to give you all kinds of information that will explain the story. Classic Tetzai. Mayasal Eud Payot. And he made him himself a sword, a dagger, with two mouths. Gomed or cut. It was a cubit in left. This was shorter than usual, a cubit about 15 inches. But Yachgora told me, and he belted it under his madim uh, in modern Hebrew, his uniform, but it's his clothing on his right thigh. Now, if you've ever seen the swashbuckling movies, right, the right handed men take the sword out of the sheath on their left hip and they're right? Now, Ehud is lefty, so he puts it on his right hip. And he's going to pull it out with his left hand. No one expects anything coming from the right hip. So this is going to be very critical. Now, I, I got you a picture of this. Again, it's side, sideways, but that's less important because it's a picture. Okay, so the Dat Mikra shows you what daggers, what swords used to look like. They were one-sided. Echus is more like a modern dagger, sharp on both ends very, very deadly, short, and easy to hide. This is all important to the story, right? And he put close the offering, the gift to Eglon, the king of Moab. And I just kind of love this. And Eglon was a very fat man. Now, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Bari, is such an interesting word because you have with the cows, with paro, right? They were sheva parot, right? Riot basar, healthy. Now, this is so cultural that it's actually fascinating. Until very recently, fat was good. Fat was healthy. Wasn't that nice? Was the good old days. Today, skinny is healthy, but the truth of the matter is, for centuries, skinny people were the poverty-stricken, undernourished people. And the people who had flesh on them were the people who ate well, they were the rich people. So to say that he was a barimo, he was a man of basar. Okay, so this guy, right? This guy is a very, very bari, very, very fat. And was when they finished, he finished, like A was in charge, to bring near the offering, the gift, 
he sent, he sent away the nation who were the bearers of the mincha, Yitet, but who shoved mincha psilev, asheret hagilgal. What is Ehud doing here? If you take a look at the map, okay, we keep jumping around, I hope it's not bothering you. So they're in Moab, right? With Eglon, and they go to Gilgal. They go to the place where you cross the Jordan. And Ehud goes with them, with the delegation, to the place that's called Pesilim. We don't know exactly what it is, but Pesel is a statue. And it's, it's usually assumed that Pesilim is the quarries where they made the um, statues, okay? And he returns alone. He sends up the delegation. Now, if we take a look at this from the point of view of the Moabites, the Jews come, those subservient Jews, they bring us all the good stuff that we insist that they give us, right? They all leave and, comes, and, and the leader comes back all by himself, ostensibly unarmed, like he wouldn't pass a metal detector test, but they didn't have that then. <clears throat> they don't suspect him because if he was trying to pull anything, why wouldn't he do it when he had a whole crew with him? So he comes back by Yomer, and he comes back to the king by Yomer. I have a secret for you, O king. Now, davar in Hebrew is a word or a thing, which is in itself a discussion because that means that, you know, thematically, conceptually, words have weight in Judaism. Words are things. But here he, He's referred to that secret dagger that's under his, his clothing, but he says, I have a secret to tell you. Now, it looks very legit because he sent his people away. I don't want my people to hear. This is just between me and you. And the king says, okay, I don't want my people to hear either. This is uh, just between us. Has means silence. So the courtiers understood that this meant that they go out. Similarly, when Yosef, uh, what reveals himself to his brothers, he also sends the people out. So it's just Eglon and Ehud. Plus a cough. But Ehud ba a love, and Ehud comes closer. Now, Aliyata Mekera, Mekera is from Lashon Kar. It was a chilly room. Now, it's very hot in the Middle East. And this king was very obese, and he needed a lot of air. So he had a private chamber with a lot of air. And it was up, an upper chamber, and he was in there by himself. He had sent everyone out. And Ehud comes close and he says to him, Ayoma Ehud, Zivar Elohim Lecha, I have a word of God for you. By he say, now notice, right? When he gets up, it doesn't say Hamelach. At this point in time, this is Yom Hadin for Eglon, and he's not the king here, only God is the king. He gets up from the chair. Now, I have to say that this mark of respect for God is very, very critical to um, this story. The Chazal say here, Ashi, This was a great merit for Eglon because he had that respect to get up for God, for something that's coming from God. And you might say he was a idolater, right? But like, God, Jewish God is a God, right? They believe in all the gods, but he had enough respect to get up. Now, 
anybody who has been pregnant or overweight in any way knows that getting up when you are overweight is not a simple thing. And getting up when you're pregnant is really hard. And I remember like you have to clutch the back of the chair and you're like, oh, 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 oh. So egg alone, getting up is a big deal. It's not a simple thing for him to do. And it's not an easy thing for him to do. So getting up is very significant. And what's going on while he's getting up? He's busy getting himself out of the chair, out of respect for God. And Ayod sends his left hand, takes the sword from his right hip, and he sticks it in his stomach. Eglon is busy. He does. He can't defend himself, and he stabs him. Now, um, if you take a look at the getting up here, uh, Hashem makes a comment in the Medrash saying, you see how the non-Jews respect me? Jews don't respect me at all. The non-Jew who is, who is uncircumcised, he respects me. He gets up and the Jews have no respect. It's a very big uh, problem that God sees that. So you have to, and the Chazal learn from here that one must get up for uh, things of Kedusha. They learn from here. Holy things you get up. Okay, Pasuk Hapeit. Okay, it gets a little sorted here, ladies, uh, trigger warning. <laughs> and the, the hilt went in after the blade and the fat covered, closed on the blade because he did not pull out the sword from his stomach. How do we understand this? For number one, if the man is so fat and he puts in this dagger, the, the sword is kind of gross. I'm sorry, there's a lot of gross stuff in this story. I think that Shmuel is being satirical. The flesh absorbs the knife, covers it over. Now, why doesn't Ehud pull out the sword? There's many reasons for that. First of all, he can't because it's been absorbed. Second of all, it would be a big mess. And third of all, he doesn't want to walk around with a dagger. He, well, what did I do? I'm just fine. So the last bit of this is really the most disgusting part. By And the excrement comes out. This is when people die. So their muscles are uh, relaxed. And this sort of nasty stuff happens. So uh, this is misunderstood. It's very, very critical to the story to understand that the excrement came out, even though that's quite disgusting. And Ehud leaves the mess, like he's, right? He goes out into the hall and he locks, he closes the doors of that upper chamber behind him and he locks it from the outside. This is an incredible miracle. Now, this is like, you know, it's a little bit of a scary story, but you understand this man was oppressing the Jews for 18 years. But it, this is how he gets away. Kosh gives him a nace of split-second timing. He leaves, and the servants come. Very similar to Yaakov leaving Yitzchak, right, after he's taken the bracha, and just then Esau comes. Kosh makes miracles, right? And this is a, a, a big, important lesson. You do your Hishtadus and a Baruch Hu will help. And 
they come, they see the doors are locked. From, we know it's from the outside. Ehud took the key, apparently. They don't know which side it's locked, but it's locked. By Yomru, they said, he must be indisposed. He's in the toilet. Now, of course, they have chamber pots. That's how they did this stuff. But covering the legs is a euphemism for moving his bowels. Why do they think he's moving his bowels? Because it stinks. Because we said that the excrement came out. So that was a disgusting and sordid element. And it's important to understand the story. They're standing outside and they say, well, he must be in the toilet. And they waited until it was already embarrassing. The expression, is it's just, you wait so long that it's just annoying and embarrassing already. You're not opening the doors. By they took the key they had probably a spare. By they opened. down on the floor. Now, if you think about, it, there's no like forensic institutes at this time. The knife is not visible. He's just dead. Anything could have happened to him. They have no reason. This is the brilliance of this. No reason to suspect foul play, and then it's gone. Okay, you know, we might call it, what, I don't know what if you call it, a heart attack, or, you know, a fit. They come and they find him dead. And Ehud runs away while they're still dallying, thinking he's in the toilet and all this. And he runs, of course, back to where he was, crosses the Jordan again. And it was when he came, he blew the shofar and notice the language. He stuck it in his stomach. Takaba shofar. The words here are all very, um, um, what's the word, alliterative and, 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 and repetitive to so give you a sense of the unity of the story. And he comes to Harifrayim and he calls the children of Israel. He blows the shofar to get the muster the troops. And he runs up ahead, Now we need the map for this for a second. He said to them, chase after me because Hashem has given your enemy Moab in your hands. Remember, he doesn't take any credit for himself. He's a humble person. God has given you your enemy in your hands. And they go after him and they capture the fords of the Jordan and they don't let anyone cross. Now, what happens here, and this is a tactic that we see again and again, especially in Sefer Shoftim. If you don't let the Moabites cross here and you go to attack them, they cannot run away. And if you're caught, uh, uh, taking the crossings, the Moabites from here can't get over to the other side. So you have a situation where the Moabites are completely divided. The ones in the West Bank, the ones at the East Bank, they're separated. The ones at the East Bank don't even know anything happened. They don't know there's a rebellion going on and they've got to deal with their dead king, right? And the ones on the West Bank, when they see the Jews are after them, have no place to run. And they struck Moab at that time, 10,000 men, all the fat ones, Again, that was a good thing in those days, and probably still a good thing. And all the men of war, and nobody got away. 
פסק למד. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anat. He struck the Philistines, remember them, 600 men with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. This is, this is a little strange story that we're adding on here. I just want to uh, roll back a second. First of all, um, it doesn't seem to follow the general cycle. Whereas we see that at, at the, the Moabites surrendered, the Jews have cried for 80 years, double, double the usual. And we have this great victory over the Moabites. We don't hear for the Moabites again, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So a number of things, takeaways from here. Number one, the Ralbach says, you know, you cannot rely on miracles. You have to have a plan. Um, Ehud has a very well thought out plan. It goes with the help of God very smoothly. And another important lesson here, and this is um, the, the Malbim, right? Shmuel is being satirical here, and he's showing you the Moabites are generally, they're fools. They're bumbling idiots. They get this all wrong. They let Ehud in. They don't know what's happening. Everything is, and we're, we're showing the Moabites is just like not very bright and not very successful. And it has to tell us that God strengthened them to overpower the Jews. So that's a very, very important lesson that Shmuel is giving over in this story and saying, you know what? If you are uh, the Jewish people, if God wants to punish them, he can do that with anything. And if Hashem wants to support us, if we follow what God wants, then we can overcome any enemy. All kinds of miracles happen. And say for your sure we saw those those miracles. So our, our really our greatest protection is to be serving Hashem properly. And um, yeah, so this is actually, I think, really um, dramatic story. And uh, all the details that we're told that he's left-handed, what his dagger was like, where he put the dagger, the excrement coming out, all of these details together are important to give the whole picture of what happened with Eglon. And um, it's important to understand that the Tanakh is telling us the story for an, a reason. We're being shown what, you know, what kind of enemy can overpower us if we are not doing what we're supposed to do. And how a Kaddish bro who helps, you know, when, when the Jews need help and they cry out to God, even when they don't deserve it, and Hashem gives them this, this victory, a very um, amazing victory. Split second.